Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Rochester, Minnesota to discuss the diagnosis and management of shock in the era of COVID-19. Hello, I'm Jake Jenser, and I uh, am a uh, cardiac intensivist. I uh, work at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I did uh, cardiology and critical care fellowship training at the University of Pittsburgh, and I practice uh, predominantly in the cardiac intensive care unit here at Mayo Clinic, uh, but I do have uh, experience uh, working in uh, post-cardiac surgery units as well, uh, and I have a particular interest in the care of patients with shock, particularly as it relates to risk stratification and management of uh, more challenging uh, cases of refractory shock. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Jake. Uh, we'll be basing today's podcast on um, your really great article published in the August 2018 issue of CHEST, and we're going to be discussing the management and diagnosis of shock in the era of uh, COVID-19. So before we get started, maybe you could um, tell our audience, you know, what is our current definition of shock? How do we classify it? And is, what is your approach to managing shock? Sure. One of the challenges that we struggle with with creating a uniform definition of shock is that there are a lot of different components that go into the diagnosis. In the broadest terms, we can define shock as an inability to provide adequate blood supply uh, to the tissues and organs. And in many cases, this is associated with hypotension uh, and different definitions may or may not include uh, hypotension within uh, the requirements. The challenge is that to make the diagnosis, we have to integrate a number of different types of data points, including vital sign data, clinical examination, and laboratory data. We know that there are a lot of physical examination findings that can be used to identify shock. We, uh, for example, cold or clammy extremities, impaired capillary refill, uh, but also we have a number of uh, relevant laboratory findings, uh, including elevated lactate levels. Uh, some of the findings are fairly nonspecific, such as altered mental status. And uh, patients may or may not be hypotensive. And in some cases, uh, patients who are normotensive but have other features of shock do almost as badly as patients who are hypotensive and have other features of shock. Now, the diagnosis is, is even more difficult because each of the individual findings that may identify patients with shock can either be uh, mimicked or masked by other disease processes. Um, for example, somebody who has advanced peripheral vascular disease may have relatively cooler extremities uh, that may be modeled even in the absence of a true systemic shock state. Now, my usual management strategy of shock, uh, the, uh, the first and most important thing is to try and identify the underlying shock physiology. Uh, I tend to simplify and I break shock initially down into what I call cold shock and what I call warm shock. And that, to some extent, is related to the physical examination. Cold shock would typically be associated with a low cardiac output and a high systemic vascular resistance. And those are often your patients who have significant modeling and cool extremities. And the two major causes are hypovolemic shock and cardiogenic shock. And because I like to make things simple, I consider obstructive shock, which could include pulmonary embolism and cardiac tamponade, as a form of cardiogenic shock. On the other hand, Warm shock would typically be your distributive shock where uh, patients often uh, ha have warm extremities. They may have preserved capillary refill. And in particular, they often have uh, relatively preserved distal pulses despite uh, having a low blood pressure. Uh, patients with warm shock also often can be recognized by having a low diastolic blood pressure and a relatively preserved systolic blood pressure uh, leading to a normal or widened pulse pressure. On the other hand, patients with cold shock typically have a narrow pulse pressure due to a low systolic blood pressure and a, a higher diastolic comparatively. And so once I've broken things down in that regard, I think about next steps. Now, for most patients, you want to initially, initially start by evaluating whether they might benefit from uh, fluid resuscitation. Uh, certainly, fluid resuscitation is less likely to be helpful in a patient with uh, cardiogenic shock but sometimes in the early phases, it's not obvious what form of shock the patient has or they may have multiple coexisting types. And so looking at markers of uh, fluid responsiveness can be very helpful in the early phases. Now, there are a lot of different ways to assess fluid responsiveness, 
and each of them has uh, major limitations. Um, the one that I often use uh, is actually a fluid challenge where I give uh, a, a defined quantity of fluid, typically 250 to 500 cc's, uh, rapidly and reassess the patient's hemodynamics uh, looking for some form of improvement either in perfusion or uh, the hemodynamics themselves. Now, the disadvantage of this approach is that it uh, may lead you to give more fluid to patients who aren't ultimately going to benefit. And certainly before you give any patient fluids, you want to evaluate for fluid overload and look for other features that might suggest that the patient is at risk of harm for fluid, uh, from fluids. For example, uh, if the patient has evidence of pulmonary edema, pulmonary congestion, or even uh, diffuse bilateral B-lines on a lung ultrasound, that uh, let, lets you know you may want to be more cautious of fluids. Now, there are a number of other forms of uh, fluid responsiveness testing that uh, each, again, have their own disadvantages. We know that about half of patients are fluid responsive, and we know that uh, using a central venous pressure is not terribly accurate at identifying those patients. And so generally, central venous pressure is not that useful unless it's extremely low or extremely high, uh, which is not, not as common. There are a number of dynamic markers, which in the right patients are really excellent, uh, including uh, pulse pressure variation, as well as stroke volume variation that can be uh, derived from the arterial line. Uh, you can also use uh, Doppler echocardiography uh, to look at the left ventricular outflow tract um, flow variation, as well as using aortic Doppler. And these all measure the same thing, which is essentially uh, changes in stroke volume induced by breathing. And in general, uh, the higher these values are, the more likely a patient is to have an improvement in cardiac output when they're given fluids. But it's important to understand that the studies that validated all of these parameters required patients to be um, passive on a uh, mechanical ventilator, not taking spontaneous breaths in a regular sinus rhythm. And they actually had to have generally eight cc's per kilo tidal volume. So very few of my patients meet all of those criteria. So, I have, so it's important to make sure not to overapply these parameters in patients where they weren't designed. Um, in addition, patients with um, pericardial disease and right heart dysfunction can uh, actually have what appears to be pulse pressure variation, but it's actually um, uh, pulses paradoxus, and those patients may even be harmed by fluids. So it's very important to only use these measures in the patients where uh, they're designed to be used. Um, in lieu of a fluid challenge, certainly you could do a passive straight leg raise. Um, this requires some form of beat-to-beat uh, -beat measurement of the cardiac output, which you could get from a pulse contour monitoring device. Um, and this, when done properly, is actually uh, one of the better ways to evaluate um, fluid responsiveness. But again, typically requires some teamwork and has to be done uh, correctly or it's not uh, truly valid. A lot of people look at the echocardiogram and try and uh, glean uh, measures of fluid responsiveness from it. But uh, these, even though I'm a cardiologist and I, I do echocardiography, uh, clinically, I tend to be very skeptical about this because most of them haven't been as well validated. Um, and, and the, the inferior vena cava size and collapsibility just on its own is not uh, necessarily valid insofar as it's mostly just a surrogate for CVP, which isn't a great predictor. Uh, but there are some uh, measurements that can be obtained from echocardiography, um, such as IVC desensibility, that if done properly can be predicted. So once you've established that the patient is or is not likely to respond to fluids, you provide fluids until they no longer meet those criteria. And at that point, I start thinking about vasopressor therapy. Now, in very sick patients with severe hypotension, you may be forced to start vasopressors um, as you're evaluating uh, fluid responsiveness and as you're starting to resuscitate the patient. And we know that in uh, patients with sepsis, we often are taught to give substantial amounts of fluid uh, as the initial therapy. And certainly, if that's your leading differential diagnosis, then that makes a lot of sense. Uh, likewise, in a patient who you think has hypovolemic shock, then uh, fluid resuscitation in larger volumes may be appropriate. Um, every once in a while, we even find a patient with cardiogenic shock who has uh, inappropriately low plasma volume. Uh, for example, someone who has very severe pulmonary edema actually uh, can become relatively hypovolemic despite having um, pulmonary edema. And, in, and even a few of those patients may uh, be, benefit from cautious application of fluids. So when I'm thinking about vasopressor therapy, I think about two major things. The first is what's the underlying physiology and is there a specific drug that might be better for the patient? And the second is, is there a specific drug that might be safer for the patient? Uh, because what we've learned from vasopressor trials is that the 
potential risks of these drugs are very high and differ drug to drug. It's also worth noting that vasopressors to some extent can facilitate the patient's response to fluid resuscitation uh, because the peripheral vasoconstriction that, that they cause will improve venous return and uh, particularly in vasodilating patients. And so uh, there are studies now think, uh, thinking about giving vasopressors relatively early to see if that can safely reduce the amount of fluid resuscitation necessary. And certainly a patient who's needing a lot of fluids in the setting of a vasodilated physiology um, with warm shock and sepsis, uh, early initiation of vasopressors should be definitely considered. Now, most of the time, I start with norepinephrine as my first-line drug. Uh, the majority of the studies that have examined first-line vasopressors and compared them in a randomized fashion have consistently shown that norepinephrine is associated with either um, a lower risk of mortality in some cases or, at minimum, a lower risk of other side effects, particularly uh, arrhythmias. Now, the, the studies using vasopressin and norepinephrine are a little bit harder to interpret, and I'll discuss that a bit later. But specific studies that have compared um, either epinephrine or dopamine to norepinephrine have been pretty consistent in the finding that uh, the uh, epinephrine and dopamine, which have strong uh, beta activation, are much more prone to having arrhythmias. And although this is not necessarily consistently associated with higher mortality in patients with septic shock, it, it definitely appears to be associated with higher mortality in patients with cardiogenic shock. So for the most part, regardless of the type of shock the patient has, norepinephrine is a very reasonable first-line drug uh, simply because of its lower risk of arrhythmias and other cardiac toxicity. Now, the, there may be a role for some of these other agents um, as first-line therapies in certain situations. For example, um, number one, if you don't have norepinephrine available, you're going to have to use an alternative. I think in that situation, if you have epinephrine as an alternative, it's generally a good choice because it's at least been shown to be uh, equivalent in terms of mortality, particularly in patients with septic shock. Uh, both are very strong vasopressors that uh, tend to be highly effective. With epinephrine, you need to remember that it does have some predictable side effects like uh, lactic acid, uh, lactic acidosis, and hyperglycemia, in addition to its obvious uh, additional cardiac effects. You, in theory, could use vasopressin as a first-line drug if you were, uh, didn't have any uh, norepinephrine or epinephrine available. Uh, the added cost is certainly a consideration, and the relatively limited dose range that we use um, make it not ideal. Um, dopamine is almost never the best first choice. Um, if someone were severely bradycardic and not and not prone to arrhythmias, then it, it could be used because it tends to raise the heart rate, and, and that could be potentially advantageous in that very niche situation. But we know that at least half of patients with uh, severe shock don't respond to dopamine, even at maximum doses, so it's really not a good choice. And the final drug, which I personally don't use a lot for shock but can be used in the right situation, is phenylephrine. And so phenylephrine is a pure alpha agonist uh, that causes a lot of vasoconstriction, uh, if someone is severely vasodilated, phenylephrine is a very reasonable drug to try, particularly if they're quite tachycardic or already having arrhythmias because uh, it doesn't have any intrinsic beta activity, so it doesn't ha have any proarrhythmic effects at all and may even be slightly antiarrhythmic. Um, but I generally think that uh, it's not quite as good for overall tissue perfusion and its overall effects on the pulmonary vasculature aren't quite as favorable as, for example, norepinephrine. So in the setting of having all of these drugs available, I go with norepinephrine as my first-line drug almost always. But recognizing that, you know, these are difficult times and we may be in a situation where patients are sick and need vasopressors but we don't have the right drugs available, uh, knowing your alternative agents and their potential advantages and disadvantages uh, is, is particularly useful. I think that's a really great way to start this conversation and I'll definitely encourage the, the, the audience to read um, your paper and especially focus on figure two where you describe hypovolemic shock, cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock, and vasodilatory shock and your approach to that. I want to uh, flip the switch a little bit. So you've given us the approach of how to start the patients off on, you know, uh, checking for fluid responsiveness and then choosing either um, uh, which uh, vasopressor you're going to use. Um, sometimes we come onto a service and we have a whole bunch of patients and one or two of them may be on three or four presses um, at the time. 
how do you go about sorting out, you know, other presses doing what they should be doing, and uh, how do I start weaning off those presses? Um, what, what's your approach in that situation? So that's always challenging. I think whenever I'm confronted with a patient who seems to be in very severe shock with multiple vasopressors, I try to, again, go back to first principles because in a lot of those patients, something else is happening in addition to the, the first problem that got them into shock in the first place that is perpetuating and, uh, keep, and keeping their shock going. And so you always want to make sure that you're not missing a secondary complication. For example, if you have a patient who's doing relatively well, and then they abruptly deteriorate, well, that's obviously pretty suggestive that something new has happened. But if you have someone who just progressively deteriorates, uh, they never do well, they're just kind of deteriorating, deteriorating, it to me implies that you're missing something. And I always try and go back and say, well, what could I be missing? For example, if I'm confident, you know, am I confident in the type of shock that I'm treating? Um, we know that, um, you know, vasoconstrictors like norepinephrine and, and other vasopressors tend to be not that effective in cardiogenic shock unless you add an inotropic agent to improve the cardiac output. So make sure that you know what type of shock you're treating, especially because mixed shock states that have features of, of you know, both are not uncommon. Then I try to think about, is there a physiologic problem that is causing the patient to not respond well to vasopressors? Um, we, you know, some things are, are well-known, like, for example, adrenocortical insufficiency. Uh, the challenge with, um, with that in particular is that it's hard to diagnose. And uh, the more people study um, critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, the more they realize that our, our tests that we run in a standard fashion are really inadequate to, to characterize that illness. And so that's one possibility. But a lot of times other metabolic abnormalities are there. Um, for example, patients who, are, who get uh, significantly acidemic. We know that um, the catecholamines and the receptors don't work as well at low pH conditions. And I think that there's really a sliding scale uh, for what pH each patient is going to need that really depends on their underlying cardiac disease. So a perfectly healthy uh, young person may be able to uh, preserve their vascular tone and respond to catecholamines even at a very low pH. Um, for example, uh, patients who present with diabetic ketoacidosis often have pHs less than seven, and uh, yes, they're sick, but they, but because their cardiovascular system is otherwise healthy, they're able to compensate. But many of the patients I uh, care for who are older and have advanced forms of cardiovascular disease, um, for example, pulmonary hypertension with RV failure or advanced cardiomyopathy, for reasons that I don't entirely understand, they really seem to need much more normal physiology and tend not to do well, even at a pH level that should be adequate for the average patient. And so asking about whether that uh, component, the metabolic acidosis, might need to be uh, treated differently, or in the case of a respiratory acidosis, can that be treated uh, better uh, with better ventilation? Another thing that I tend to be very sensitive to is uh, the ionized calcium level. There's a longstanding literature that uh, clearly shows that ionized hypocalcemia is very common in critically ill patients. It also is true that uh, Thicker patients are more likely to have ionized hypocalcemia and that patients with ionized hypocalcemia are more likely to die. Now, the challenge is to understand to what extent that might be a, an adaptive response versus a maladaptive response. Certainly, we know that albumin, which is negatively charged, um, it binds calcium, and so a lot of the ionized calcium uh, relates to the dynamics of the binding between calcium and albumin, and that's affected by pH. And so under normal circumstances, a lower pH uh, actually allows albumin to release some of that calcium. But when the pH has been, uh, is, is within a, an acceptable range and the calcium is still low, it raises the question over whether this might impair cardiovascular responses because all muscle contraction depends on calcium. And there's certainly some studies that have suggested that if you give calcium in higher doses, you can raise the blood pressure transiently, although it's less clear, and it's also known that patients who have severe hypocalcemia can have uh, cardiovascular failure from that alone. What's less clear is whether a patient who has mild to moderate ionized hypocalcemia will benefit from raising that ionized calcium level back into the normal range. But anecdotally, I and many of my colleagues have observed that uh, calcium chloride um, for, these types of, for these patients with low calcium can often improve their vasopressor responses. 
So thinking about those metabolic things is very important on the front end. Once you've uh, you know, improved those things, then I try to think about, you know, of the various uh, vasopressors, are, you, are the different drugs doing the same thing in different ways or are they doing different things? For example, we have, uh, most of the vasopressors we use are essentially catecholamines, and they exert their primary vasoconstrictive effect via alpha receptors and their primary cardiac effect via beta receptors. And, of course, at high doses, these receptors can become relatively saturated, and in some cases, they actually become down-regulated when, um, with excessive stimulation. And so, for example, if you have a patient on a very high dose of norepinephrine, you're probably activating all the alpha receptors that you can, and, the, and part of the issue is that your alpha receptors are either uh, not responding normally or there aren't enough of them. And so in that situation, adding phenylephrine often doesn't do a lot. It, it certainly can in some situations, but a lot of times it just adds on to a receptor effect that's already ma maxed out. The same can be true in some cases with um, epinephrine and certainly with dopamine. Adding dopamine to a high dose of um, either epinephrine or norepinephrine typically doesn't do much. And that's why I think about adding some of these uh, vasopressors that have different targets. For example, vasopressin, one of the biggest advantages that that has is use of a different receptor mechanism uh, that to some extent works better in low pH conditions and uh, helps facilitate the function of the alpha receptor. The same is true with uh, angiotensin, again, a different uh, receptor mechanism that's complementary. So if I see someone who's on, you know, four pressors, I'm thinking to myself, well, gosh, that's probably a lot of catecholamines that they're on. Are their catecholamines helping them or could they even be hindering them? Um, and so then I try to come up with a, a combination that's rational, that takes advantage of the interplay between these receptors that's, you know, essentially how our cardiovascular system is designed to respond to stress is with uh, interacting complementary mechanisms. And so that's how the, for example, the corticosteroids that they improve alpha receptor activity along with vasopressin and angiotensin. And then once the patient has stabilized and their underlying disease starts to get better, they may obviously still be on all these drugs and need to figure out how to come down. And there's a couple of different approaches and for the most part, there's not any great evidence-based studies. The first that I think about is um, I start by taking off the last one added. That's a very logical approach. Not always correct, but sometimes it makes sense. Um, I also think about the cost. Uh, certainly, we know that uh, norepinephrine is less costly than vasopressin and angiotensin. And so if you're using those, some of those other drugs, ask yourself, you know, is, is it more cost-effective to start coming down? Um, I then think about side effects. For example, if my patient's quite tachycardic or starting to have arrhythmias and my mean arterial pressure is adequate and I can start weaning, I'll probably start with a drug that has beta activity first. And then um, finally, the other, the other approach is, well, if you were on something that wasn't working and then you added something else that really worked, then get rid of the thing that wasn't working. And there's, there's some evidence looking at, you know, vasopressin and norepinephrine and when to wean them. And it is true that if, that if you're on both norepinephrine and vasopressin and you're doing well, you're more likely to have recurrent hypotension if you just stop the vasopressin. Um, and part of that may be due to the study design because a lot of uh, different centers have different practices about whether they wean or titrate vasopressin. I try not to stop at cold turkey. So if I think the patient might have benefited from it, I'll try and wean it off slowly rather than just cut it off because I, again, certainly don't want to trigger recurrent hypotension as the result. So what is the role of measuring the cardiac index and uh, the, uh, therefore this uh, systemic vascular resistance and what is your optimal tool to do that? So a very tricky question to answer. In particular, I think that all hemodynamic parameters have to be taken in the, in the context of the overall patient. And one of the, one of the things that I was taught as a fellow that, that does stick, that continues to stick with me is there's no such thing as a normal cardiac output because the cardiovascular system is designed to match the cardiac output to the systemic oxygen demand. And so I'm a lot less likely to monitor the cardiac output in a patient who, uh, particularly a patient who doesn't have cardiogenic shock. A single-time evaluation can be useful because it can help screen for mixed shock states and help identify the cause of shock. 
I, uh, even though they're not as useful for um, monitoring resuscitation and sepsis, I think that uh, venous oxygen saturation, either from the central or from the central vein or uh, pulmonary artery, can provide a lot of information, particularly in the early phases of shock, um, because it can help you identify number one, what is the type of shock. It can help you identify mixed shock states and uh, give you an idea about whether this is a patient who may need additional uh, cardiac inotropic support. And so a lot of times when I get called to evaluate a patient with shock, particularly if they're not doing well, one of the first things that I do is I measure the, the central venous oxygen saturation. And if I see that that is unexpectedly low, I try and think about what are the components that might contribute to that. You know, certainly we know that anemia, systemic hypoxemia, and um, high demand can artificially lower that, that uh, venous oxygen saturation. But once you've taken all those other things into account, it generally correlates fairly directly with cardiac output. So if I have a patient who's billed as septic shock, and then I check a venous oxygen saturation after they've been, you know, what we believe is fully fluid resuscitated and on uh, pressors, then, and their venous saturation is still low, that makes me think perhaps that is not, uh, that they do have a mixed shock state and may need some form of inotropic support. But the most important thing is I only ask the question in a patient who has poor perfusion. So I, I try and put the perfusion first, and then I try and put the hemodynamics after that. And, that, and part of the reason is that um, different patients have different baselines, and a, a combination of cardiac output and blood pressure that may be okay for this patient at baseline and during illness may not be okay for a different patient. So if I have a patient who has ongoing, for example, low urine output, lactic acidosis, et cetera, then I think about, is my blood pressure goal adequate? You know, have I appropriately evaluated them for fluid responsiveness? And then I start thinking about what do I need to improve their cardiac output? How do I measure it? Well, I'm a cardiologist, so I tend to measure it um, using a PA catheter because that's something that I do routinely. But there's certainly a, a large literature that suggests that routine PA catheter use is not beneficial. And so it's certainly not something I do for every patient. Now, in, for the most part, with a venous saturation, uh, central venous oxygen saturation and central venous pressure, for most patients without advanced cardiac disease, that gives you the majority of the information you need to know. And although you can't necessarily say exactly what the patient's cardiac output or wedge pressure might be, you get a general idea because wedge pressure and CVP correlate pretty well. And certainly if the person has a venous saturation that's in the 70s, it's unlikely that a low cardiac output is the cause of their poor perfusion. And so you have to think about what information are you trying to get. I personally don't give much value to monitoring the systemic vascular resistance. Uh, because it's derived from a lot of other things. And so if I know the blood pressure and I know the cardiac output, I can generally make treatment decisions without having to resort to trying to measure and, and think about the systemic vascular resistance itself. It is useful on the front end, though, to try and identify, um, particularly in a patient with cardiogenic shock, the, the subgroup that has inappropriately low vascular tone and they have mixed shock. And they're, they're particularly challenging to, uh, to care for and that's where that systemic vascular resistance number as a one-time thing can be useful. Now, I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about some of the pulse contour monitoring devices and their accuracy. That being said, some, uh, there is uh, data suggesting that in appropriately selected patients, particularly in the perioperative setting, uh, they're pretty valid and can be useful for decision-making. And they certainly are less invasive uh, than uh, a PA catheter. And so if you already have an arterial line then, you know, there's really no major added risk from uh, using one of these pulse contour devices. And some of them are calibrated, which adds the additional layer of accuracy. Um, I also tend in those patients, with, when I'm using the pulse contour monitoring device, to check a venous saturation to make sure that the numbers make sense. Because if you're looking at the numbers on the screen, they tend to vary a lot. And if they're varying above and below a threshold at which you take action, it becomes very challenging. Uh, because in some cases, that's actually the area where they're least accurate. And so I tend to use those devices when I think I know what's going on, but I want some objective evidence. And then if I see, oh, gosh, I really thought the cardiac output was good, the device confirms that I feel better about that. Or if I um, do an intervention and the device measures that intervention, for example, I think this patient needs to be started on an inotrope, their cardiac output looks low, 
I start the inotrope and the cardiac output goes up, then I say, okay, well, this seems like we're getting the effect we want. Um, but I tend not to focus a lot on the individual numbers because the error, the error bars on those measurements are fairly wide in some cases. And again, if someone has a declining lactate that's going to normal, they have good capillary perfusion, good urine output, and a good blood pressure, I'm not going to worry that much about um, what their cardiac output is because it's adequate. And that's all I necessarily worry about. So focus first on perfusion and then the hemodynamics. So, um, Jake, I want to turn our I want to turn our attention to um, COVID nineteen. You've given us a really good overview, and I'll definitely encourage our listeners to look at your really great paper, um, Figure Three, Figure Two. Absolutely uh, phenomenal. So, turning to COVID nineteen. Um, You've got the experience of both the intensive care and cardiology. What challenges um, will COVID-19 pose from a shock point of view in terms of diagnosis and management? So there really haven't been a lot of great published studies focusing specifically on shock in COVID-19. And we can't even agree on what the prevalence is. And that's probably because the prevalence goes up according to the overall level of illness. So if you were to look at a general cohort of patients who had a COVID-19 infection, probably only a couple percent of them actually have shock because the majority of them are not critically ill. But as you then get into hospitalized patients, the the rate goes up. As you get into intensive care patients, the rate goes up possibly to the 20 to 30 plus percent. And a a recent study that I I just got, uh, I just saw in PubMed actually said that more than 80% of people dying from COVID have shock. So the, the sicker you are with COVID, the more shock you have to worry about. Now, most of the shock caused by COVID appears to be septic. But again, there's not a lot of great epidemiologic data published on that yet. But we do know that COVID can affect the heart. And a very substantial number of patients uh, with COVID infection, again, correlating with how sick they are, have some form of myocardial injury at, based on you know, detectable blood levels of troponin. There are fewer but still well-recognized cases of overt COVID myocarditis, where the virus either directly infects the myocardium or triggers an autoimmune reaction. Again, we're not entirely clear yet what the true mechanism is, but that can cause full-blown fulminant myocarditis in some patients. And obviously, those types of patients, rather than having a pure septic shock, would actually have cardiac dysfunction and cardiogenic shock. And we don't really know yet what the prevalence of cardiac dysfunction on a, on a, on a truly, you know, on a, in terms of ejection fraction or low cardiac output is with, with COVID. The other thing that people haven't been talking about as much but uh, has been a focus of the ARDS literature for several, uh, several years is the concept of core pulmonale. And we know that um, ARDS can uh, increase by causing lung injury, can increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. Uh, that can cause strain on the right heart. Certainly, the ventilator settings themselves in patients with worse, um, worse respiratory failure can contribute, as well as poor gas exchange. And to some extent, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that a lot of the cardiogenic or mixed septic cardiogenic shock occurring in, in severely of COVID patients has a component of core pulmonale and RV dysfunction as well. But that's not as not really known. That's just my hypothesis. So in terms of the pathophysiology of shock in COVID patients, there's a lot we don't know. Whether it responds differently to treatment, we also don't know, but I don't have a strong rationale for thinking it might, except for one interesting finding. So we know that the the virus itself binds to um, the ACE2, angiotensin-converting enzyme subform 2, on a variety of different cells, including the lung. Now, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is very complicated and involves a lot of different um, steps. So we know that um, you know, the kidneys, in response to poor perfusion, they release renin. Uh, renin then cleaves angiotensinogen produced by the liver to create angiotensin 1. And angiotensin 1 is cleaved by either ACE1 to create angiotensin 2, which is the um, the form that we're most familiar with that raises the blood pressure and constricts the vessels, et cetera. But, act, but also ACE2 enzyme can act on angiotensin 1 to create a number of other variants. And a lot of those are vasodilatory. But the question becomes, what 
does the virus itself do to the balance between ACE1 and ACE2? Because, for example, if it blocked all the ACE2 enzyme activity, it would create more angiotensin 2 going through ACE1. And uh, angiotensin 2, although it does have theoretically beneficial effects on shock by raising blood pressure and preserving GFR and doing a lot of other things, it also may contribute to tissue damage. And so it's in many ways a double-edged sword if it's overproduced by the body. And since we don't know exactly what happens with the virus and that system, it's, it's possible that that could contribute either to, it could mitigate shock because if you have more angiotensin um, 2 around, you may be less prone to having shock because that's a potentially a, a counter-regulatory protective mechanism. On the other hand, by dysregulating the whole system, it could change the way the shock behaves and I think that's an important area of research that a lot of people have talked about, and there's some very nice review articles recently talking about the interaction between the virus and the uh, renin angiotensin aldosterone system, but we don't know how that plays out in clinical, clinical care. But with, with COVID, there's a lot of other problems beyond just the physiology, and there's a lot of unanswered questions about the physiology, but the thing that I see as the biggest challenge with shock and COVID patients is that shock is a bedside diagnosis. And it is best treated by a clinician being able to be at the bedside serially over time to reassess the patient and their response to clinical intervention. And because of the need for PPE and the potential for um, infection and contamination, the practicalities of going in and out of a room frequently become much more challenging in a patient with COVID. And some tests that you might do multiple times become more onerous. For example, as a cardiologist, I might do serial echo at bedside on my patients. And a lot of critical care providers do point-of-care cardiac ultrasound for that exact reason. But is it really feasible to do that in a, in a COVID patient room where uh, not only do you have to worry about the PPE, but the cleaning and the potential risk of exposure, both to them and other patients? And it becomes more challenging. So simply getting access to the patient to monitor them the way you want to becomes challenging in this epidemic. And, you know, coupling with that, with the fact that we just don't know whether our standard therapies for, for shock might or might not be beneficial. Um, for example, we know that, you know, corticosteroids, when given at low doses, can be beneficial in um, patients with uh, severe and refractory septic shock, particularly those who have ARDS. Whether that's also true in COVID patients who meet those same criteria, we simply don't know. It seems logical to assume that it might be, but it's a, it's a total unknown. And because this virus may have specific effects on certain tissues and organs beyond just the general effects of the inflammatory septic response, um, that these effects aren't known yet, and we don't know whether it will modulate the response to treatment. Yeah, I think you bring up a really important point about the importance of reassessment of shock by the clinician and that it needs to be done at the bedside, um, as well as the challenge of monitoring. And I think, uh, uh, as you probably have experienced as well, um, uh, from a pulmonary point of view, um, we have the RTs, respiratory therapists, going in and doing frequent vent monitoring. And the question that we're asking ourselves is, you know, why don't we have this remote? I mean, you can um, program your car with your cell phone. Um, you can uh, lock your house with your cell phone. If for some reason we need to have someone go to the bedside and touch a ventilator in order to change the vent. So that's from um, a ventilator point of view. From a cardiac point of view, and in terms of the hemodynamic monitoring, do you think COVID will change that in a way? Or do you think we'll start having remote uh, cardiac monitoring where we'll be able to assess these patients um, driven by the need that we want to uh, protect our healthcare workers as well as minimize uh, contamination? You know, I think that would be I think that would be good on a lot of levels. I think the you know, what's, one of the things that's nice is that my electronic medical record at least allows me to view the bedside monitors so I can watch the waveforms. Actually, I can watch the waveforms better on a computer screen than I can standing outside the door because my eyesight's not very good. Um, but I think the, the, the challenge is you, I can't always see the vent. And, you know, I, I, as an intensivist, you know, and a cardiologist, I definitely do care about the vent. And I think um, not being able to monitor that as closely is something that, or at least having the level of effort required to monitor that is unfortunate. I will say that, you know, there's been a lot of, historically, I think a lot of talk about 
you know, using having some of the pumps be automated and, you know, can you program them remotely? I think there's concerns about security. Uh, for example, if someone hacks them, that would be potentially dangerous. But I know that there are people who have come up with clever ways around this. Um, for example, if you have your infusion pumps outside of the patient room, then you can program them. And as long as you have long tubing to get to the patient, maybe you can program the pumps <clears throat> and the, and you, without having to go in the room. Now, exactly how safe that is, I'm not so clear because, again, they're connected to the patient and then there's the door and everything. But certainly, uh, there are people who have done these things. And I think there, there must be a way to have the, uh, to have this be done in, in the future. And I, I think that it's a really good potential way to move things forward to simplify, uh, care for some of the nurses. But at the same time, I also worry that the more things that you can do remotely from the patient, the less you will need to go to the bedside. And I think that would be a huge loss because, you know, shock among many other critical illnesses is a disease best managed at the bedside. And it's very, very hard, I think, to sit in a little office in a workroom somewhere, look at a monitor and really know what's going on with the patient. But there must be ways around this in, in settings of pandemic, though. Um, so, Jake, you also mentioned uh, in your paper some really interesting rescue therapies uh, for refractory shock, and you've covered a couple of them uh, in the podcast uh, thus far. I was hoping you could just maybe just uh, give us some of your opinions and insights into them. And for the audience, sure. uh, the, the Jake will be chatting about Table 2, which was uh, pretty informative. Absolutely. So when when I think about a stepwise approach to shock, I talked about it already. I said, you know, we start with, assessing whether fluids are beneficial. Then you start with a first-line vasopressor. Most often, I'll start with norepinephrine. Then you'll, if you're at a dose of norepinephrine that seems to be a high enough dose but isn't working well, um, usually that's around 0.2. Um, some people prefer to use lower doses, but I typically don't. I stick with norepinephrine monotherapy for most patients until I'm at a dose of 0.2 mics per kilo per minute. But at that point, you ask yourself, gosh, why aren't things going well? And after you work through the list of potential causes that I've already talked about a little bit, you're typically going to think about adding a second drug. And the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines um, specifically say that uh, either vasopressin, which I think they do recommend to some extent, versus epinephrine can be added. And we know that uh, vasopressin uh, can be helpful in patients who are vasopressin deficient because we know that that's pretty, pretty common in patients with critical illness and sepsis. And some of those patients respond very briskly to low doses of vasopressin. Um, on the other hand, epinephrine is cheaper. Um, and that cost, of course, is offset with a higher risk of arrhythmias. Um, but those are two, you know, very effective drugs that can be added. But once you're on those two drugs, you know, you're, you're identifying a population of patients who, by needing two or more vasopressors, are at pretty high risk of adverse outcomes. And the question is, are there medicines that we can add that either improve their outcomes or reduce their vasopressor requirements? And the answer to can we improve their outcomes is I'm not sure. And the answer is can we, the answer to can we improve their vasopressor requirements is yes, definitely. So the, the types of treatments that I think about are number one, alternative types of vasopressors. And the, some of the best quality evidence, um, at least the most um, potentially favorable evidence comes from looking at uh, angiotensin II infusion for patients with uh, severe septic shock, and that comes from the Athos III study, um, which uh, was published in New England Journal in 2017, and I talk about a lot in that review article. And so the premise is that in the same way that patients can become vasopressin deficient, critically ill patients can also become angiotensin II deficient. And that occurs when they have a, a relative loss of function of their um, angiotensin-converting enzyme. And that can happen because the enzyme is on the endothelium in the lung, and so if you have severe lung injury and ARDS, that certainly seems to cause that. And so in those types of patients who are relatively angiotensin II deficient, they can have dramatic blood pressure responses to that drug. And they can go from being hypotensive despite two or three pressors to actually being hypertensive and you have to start weaning off the pressors. And so that's a, that's a very, a very powerful drug. Again, a little more costly, but when they do cost effectiveness analysis, you have to take into account a lot of other factors. For example, um, there are a couple groups of patients that really seem to respond well to angiotensin II. One of them is patients who are on dialysis. 
Um, we know that angiotensin II has a lot of renal effects. It may, to some extent, improve um, glomerular function and then um, have more favorable effects on kidney blood flow overall. And so there are some studies that suggest that patients who are on uh, who have acute kidney injury requiring dialysis are more likely to benefit from angiotensin II, and they may actually have a greater improvement in renal function. So some of that potential added cost of the drug itself might be defrayed by um, decreased need for dialysis, which uh, dialysis is very costly. So some of those cost-effectiveness analysis, you really have to take them with a grain of salt and think about the whole patient, not just a single factor. Um, there may also be some ways to identify patients that are more or less likely to respond to angiotensin II. Um, we know that angiotensin II provides feedback on renin, and so the more angiotensin II you have, the less renin gets secreted and vice versa. If you're deficient in angiotensin II, you probably have higher renin levels. And they've shown this to some extent, um, not only that renin is a good marker of perfusion, when high renin levels suggest ongoing hypoperfusion and a poor prognosis, um, similar to lactate, but actually in one study it was a little bit better, but also it looks like patients who have high renin levels respond better to angiotensin II and are more likely to potentially benefit. So, you know, with, with the angiotensin II, part of it is, you know, knowing to use it, knowing when to use it, how to use it, but also knowing who to use it in. And so we, we have some ideas that the patients with severe renal failure and the patients with high renin levels might be more likely to benefit from that drug. And so you can almost do a tailored therapy approach, potentially. As far as adding other vasopressors, I kind of talked about them. If you're already on a catecholamine, one or two catecholamines plus vasopressin, adding additional catecholamines probably isn't going to do much. And so you start thinking about alternative adjunct agents. And so the, the one that I've already mentioned, which I am a believer in, is uh, stressose hydrocortisone. Now, we know that a lot of patients with critical illness have relative adrenocortical insufficiency. We don't know how to identify it. My understanding is that most of the lab tests we use don't adequately characterize patients. And for the most part, none of those lab tests can accurately separate corticosteroid responders from non-responders. So I, I, my view of this is very, very simplistic, which is, in essence, corticosteroids are kind of like another presser because they really improve the vascular function in terms of the alpha receptors, et cetera. So if I have a patient who is needing two or more pressors, unless I have a reason not to, I typically will try giving them stress dose hydrocortisone because it has been clearly shown to um, decrease vasopressor requirements, decrease time on vasopressors without increasing mortality. We know that, it caused, that stress dose steroids do cause some side effects, hyperglycemia, electrolyte abnormalities, and risk of infection. But overall, those are mild because there's not a signal for harm. In fact, in some studies, they've shown lower mortality in the patients who got corticosteroids. Now, understanding, because not all the studies have shown that, and the meta-analyses haven't consistently shown that, it's hard to pick that out. I know that of the studies that showed mortality benefit, the general trend was they were sicker patients. They predominantly had multipressor shock, ARDS, and AKI. And so the sicker your patient is, the more likely they are to benefit from steroids, in my opinion. We know that there's some studies, although controversial, that suggest that ARDS itself early in the course might benefit from steroids. So maybe some of the benefit of steroids in those patients is actually not related to the cardiovascular effects whatsoever. And that's an unanswered question. Also, some of the studies that, were, that showed a benefit also gave fludrocortisone, which is a mineralocorticoid, you know, analogous to aldosterone. Whether you need to give that or not, I'm not certain, because they also did a randomized study where they gave that or not added to stress dose steroids that didn't seem to make an effect. But, the, but fludrocortisone is relatively safe and inexpensive, so not unreasonable to try it. Um, and so I, I tend to give steroids more than some people, um, simply because I think that the studies have consistently shown that they are at least safe in terms of not going to cause life-threatening toxicity. So that's good. Now, as far as some of the third-line rescue therapies, the, the, this is an area of major controversy. The, um, I mentioned the calcium thing before. There's really no studies of using high-dose calcium infusions as a vasopressor, although I, have, uh, I know people who have used that. And so I really can't say that that's a strategy that we should be using. Um, but again, it, it's a known strategy people have used. Um, the other thing that we do talk about a lot is nitric oxide inhibitors. And this is an area that is 
I would say very controversial for a lot of reasons. So first of all, we do know that most forms of refractory vasodilatory shock have some degree of dysregulated uh, nitric oxide activity, and in many cases, uh, high levels of nitric oxide production uh, uncontrolled fashion are major contributors. But the problem is that all the available nitric oxide inhibitor drugs are non-selective, and there's multiple subforms of nitric oxide synthase in our body that produce nitric oxide. And so some of them cause the unregulated nitric oxide production that's the problem, but other ones help facilitate normal vascular function and normal blood flow distribution to areas that, and of the tissues that need it. So if you use one of these drugs that obliterates all nitric oxide synthase function or the non-selective inhibitor, then you may lose that beneficial blood flow uh, distribution effect while at the same time raising your overall blood pressure. And so several of these types of drugs have been studied both in patients with septic shock and in patients with cardiogenic shock. And these drugs uh, that inhibit nitric oxide consistently increase blood pressure in those studies. There's no question. But they have not been associated with better, mortal better mortality. In fact, mortality was higher, especially in the septic shock population that got these drugs. And that's because nitric oxide has so many effects, not just on vascular tone, but also on the immune system and other regulatory pathways. So the drugs that, are, that we talk about, one being methylene blue, which is a nitric oxide synthase inhibitor, and the other being hydroxycobalamin, which is just a non-selective um, uh, nitric oxide uh, binder. It just sucks it all up and binds it. Those drugs definitely can raise blood pressure. And in some cases, they can raise blood pressure very dramatically, even in patients that are very sick. But it's not known whether those improvements in blood pressure are necessarily translated into mortality benefits across populations. And so I really encourage people to use those as third-line agents. Once you've really exhausted all your, other all your other possible treatments, and I generally look at them as a bridging strategy. If I can get this patient a good blood pressure for another few hours, then something else is happening that's gonna make them get better. Um, for example, if you have a patient who has a perforated viscous with abdominal sepsis and they need, and you're bringing them to the OR to, you know, to fix the actual problem, but you know they're going to have a dramatic inflammatory response with the surgery and everything going on, if that's a, that's a person who you fix the problem, and if you give them more time to recover, that is what they need. And so in that person, if they have severe refractory shock, then potentially trying to buy some time uh, might be helpful. But for the average patient who just has medical sepsis that you believe you have adequate source control and antibiotics, and the problem is just that they're, that they're uh, progressively deteriorating despite everything you do, it's not clear to me that gaining yourself a few hours of blood pressure using one of these drugs is necessarily going to be effective. And the other thing that is challenging is knowing when to administer these drugs. So we know, based on the ATHOS study, which required 0.2 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine or equivalent as the entry criteria. So I personally don't believe that starting these second-line therapies before you're at that level of norepinephrine is necessary because most people who get that level of norepinephrine or less will probably do okay on norepinephrine unless they're having arrhythmias or other toxicity, which is a different issue. But as you start getting to that 0.3 range, the 0.2 to 0.3 range, the mortality really starts to go up. And that's the range where, you know, using some of these adjunctive or second vasopressors or adjunctive therapies, you know, might be helpful because you, your patient population has a high enough risk to benefit, but not such a high risk that you're working towards futility. We know that from the angiotensin study that as you get to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute of norepinephrine or equivalent, which includes all the other stuff they're on, we know angiotensin doesn't work as well. And we know that mortality seems to go up quite a bit. So waiting until you're giving someone industrial doses of norepinephrine, you know, one mic per kilo per minute, well, that's probably too late to, to take an action. It doesn't mean that you can't consider it, but it means that you probably should have acted first. But the, answer, but the reality is we don't know. And there are some studies that have suggested that going from high doses of norepinephrine to very high doses of norepinephrine can raise blood pressure. And we don't know if that's safe or what the effects are on mortality. So the, the challenge with using all these advanced options or these second and third line drugs is, is that we don't clearly know when to use them and we don't know if there's 
clearly patients who are or are not going to benefit from one drug or another. Um, now, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, I am a little bit more restrictive with these drugs. There are some centers that are very, very good that tend to use these drugs a little bit earlier than what I'm recommending. And again, that to some extent is just different interpretations of the literature and different interpretations of uh, some of the cost effectiveness research. And so I certainly encourage people to think for themselves because, you know, I know that when uh, that there was a time where uh, when I was a fellow where the vasopressin price jumped up dramatically and there were pretty stiff restrictions on when you could use vasopressin. And I think things have gotten better since then, but that has to some extent colored my thinking about when to use these drugs as I tend to use them a little bit later than some people. Now, the other thing that I have to mention because I am a cardiologist and I do think a lot about cardiogenic shock is that most of what I've said just now is predominantly focused on septic shock, vasodilatory shock. In patients with a cardiogenic shock, things are to some extent different. Yes, norepinephrine is the right for a spine vasopressor, and yes, epinephrine and dopamine are associated with more arrhythmias. That's true across the board. In fact, in the cardiogenic shock patients, as I think I mentioned earlier, there may be harm from epinephrine and uh, dopamine because the cardiogenic shock patients have an underlying substrate that's much more prone to arrhythmias, and that's a, a major mechanism of death in cardiogenic shock patients. So those other beta-adrenergic catecholamines are dangerous, potentially. But cardiogenic shock patients often need inotropic support. And when patients in shock need inotropic support, there are a number of options. Low doses of epinephrine certainly can be used and have the advantage of having a mixed vasopressor and inotropic effect. But it's important to remember that if you're using the epinephrine as an inotrope, titrate it as an inotrope with goals that aren't necessarily blood pressure goals like you would with a vasopressor, but are actually blood flow goals and tissue oxygen delivery goals and perfusion goals. Um, in some patients, I will use low doses of dopamine, two, three, four, five mics per kilo per minute as an inotrope, but I titrate it again to tissue perfusion, organ blood flow, et cetera. Um, but probably the most effective inotrope is dibutamine. It, because it is a little bit of a vasodilator and a little bit more powerful inotrope, it tends to increase the cardiac output more than other types of inotropes um, that, we, that we use. But that, again, can cause some risk of vasodilation in a patient who has septic shock or mixed cardiogenic septic shock. But if it's necessary to improve organ perfusion, sometimes you have a mixture of uh, norepinephrine and dibutamine, each one titrated to the individual goals that it's achieving. But in cardiogenic shock, you always have to remember uh, potential role for mechanical circulatory support. And so if someone has severe multipressor cardiogenic shock, then that's a, a patient where you need to think about mechanical circulatory support. And in fact, it's possible you've already missed the boat. Now, we know that ECMO can be, uh, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation can be beneficial or at least can support patients with septic shock and cardiogenic shock and most forms of shock. Um, but it's particularly effective if the primary problem is low cardiac output, which would be cardiogenic shock. And we know that the sicker you are when you go on mechanical circulatory support, the worse you're going to do. So if it looks as if the patient is going to need circulatory support, that decision should be made as early as possible. And that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges, particularly in the era of COVID, because you have a patient who has a probably a mixed physiology. Let's envision a patient who has mixed septic and cardiogenic shock from COVID plus myocarditis or myocardial dysfunction. Well, now you're talking about a, a complex physiology in a patient who you're now talking about using a uh, very invasive, potentially you know, very expensive surgery with a lot of uh, surgical procedure with a lot of morbidity involved, either ECMO or one of these uh, potentially a percutaneous LVAD device. And the outcomes associated with these things are very unknown. And it's very, very challenging because, of course, there's a lot of people involved and so there's a lot of risk of exposure because these are all aerosol-generating procedures. So, it, again, I think the, the jury's still out about when to use some of these advanced forms of circulatory support in patients with COVID. I think that that's an institutional decision. I think each hospital needs to decide if they're going to apply those types of advanced therapies. But in the meantime, we know that with cardiogenic shock, the outcomes for patients, the average patient with inotropes and vasopressors is about the same as with mechanical circulatory support. So as long as your patient's responding as they should to therapy, it's reasonable to stick with medical therapy as the first line, even for those patients. 
And so what criteria are you using at your institution to say, you know what, this patient uh, qualifies for ECMO and I need to get him on ECMO as soon as possible? So very challenging, and I'll be honest. I think that there, that the the use of ECMO in, in COVID patients in my institution, I think, is evolving. I will say that, you know, there's certainly going to be different, very different criteria for VA and VD ECMO. And I think that there's two types of criteria that go into the decision. The first is, is the patient sick enough to benefit? Um, we know, you know, certainly if someone has a low PF ratio, uh, despite full, you know, with ARDS with full support, you know, proning, um, neuromuscular blockade if indicated, et cetera, uh, that's someone who still has a PF ratio in that sort of, you know, 50, 60 range, we know that they're not going to, you know, they're very unlikely to survive uh, without ECMO. So that, that's sort of an entry criteria. But on the other hand, the other side of criteria, the criteria is, is the patient too sick to benefit? And this is what I think we end up running into very frequently because ideally for VV ECMO, you want a patient who has single organ failure, lung failure. Again, if they also have another organ, you know, like kidneys or kidney failure or shock, it doesn't mean they can't doesn't mean they aren't a candidate, but it certainly means that their outcomes are less likely to be good, um, but also age and comorbidities. And so that's one of the big things that comes into play. I think that we, we are willing to offer um, ECMO to highly selected patients with, you know, suspected or confirmed COVID, but I think that uh, our, our threshold is relatively high. For VA ECMO, it's even more challenging because the reasons why a person with COVID would need VA ECMO are a little bit less certain. And, you know, certainly they can have myocarditis and that could cause cardiopulmonary failure. But the outcomes with those patients are really an unknown. And, you know, certainly you would say a person who has, you know, medically refractory biventricular failure or medically refractory, you know, cardiac plus pulmonary failure. Those are ECMO candidates, assuming they don't have any exclusions. Um, but the published literature, scant as it is on ECMO and COVID, is not good. Uh, at least one report had, you know, no survivors, and I think there's a couple other reports that have shown fairly low levels of survivorship among COVID patients on ECMO. So I think it's reasonable to be circumspect, especially considering how potentially risky the overall, um, you know, putting someone with COVID on ECMO carries a lot of risk of aerosol generation and spread to a lot of different care team members. And so it's crucial to make sure that you're keeping yourself safe as you work on the patient. And finally, I don't really, per, I don't personally think that eCPR, meaning ECMO-assisted CPR for patients in cardiac arrest, I, I don't really know how appropriate that is for COVID patients, simply because the mechanisms that could cause those patients to have cardiac arrest are heterogeneous. And I think it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis. I think if a person has COVID myocarditis and arrhythmias, we know from the general literature that patients with viral myocarditis or um, ventricular tachycardia storm, those people actually do pretty well on ECMO. So maybe COVID patients with those situations might also do okay. But certainly if a patient has just sort of a, a PEA arrest for unclear reasons, we know those patients don't do as well in general. So I'm not sure that I would support you know, deploying ECMO in, in that type of a situation. But I think it's very much an institutional bias because some institutions have either uh, more robust or less robust systems and I think that the ones with more robust systems might be able to consider it, but I would not encourage the institutions with sort of with less robust ECMO systems or less robust eCPR systems from going for the COVID patients simply because the outcomes, the published outcomes so far are, are seem to be fairly poor. Got you. So, uh, Jake, you've been really generous with your time and with your insights, and I think our uh, audience have um, a lot to learn. Um, as we draw towards the end of this podcast, I do want to give you the opportunity to uh, maybe share some pearls or any key messages that you want to leave our audience with, um, something that you may not have covered uh, in your preparation for the podcast or something that you just want the audience to know. Absolutely. So first of all, I want I wanted to make sure to give my condolences to anyone who has a loved one who's been affected by COVID. I know that that's taken hold in a lot of communities and had a, a wide effect on everybody. I also want to thank all the first-line healthcare providers. Um, you know, clearly there's no way that we can overcome a pandemic without uh, concerted efforts from everybody. And I know that a lot of people have had to go through a lot of hardships, and I'm just very grateful for what everyone's been able to do. Um, I also, the real, the final message that I want to give to everyone is that um, 
a lot of professional societies have come out with particularly excellent guidelines and scientific statements and other forms of guidance uh, for this particular question. Um, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, has put together a document. It actually came out very, very early. Um, Walid Al-Hazani uh, is the first author, and the, uh, the author list, as you'd imagine, is a who's who of critical care medicine. And uh, this, this was published on, uh, in the Journal of Critical Care Medicine as well as Intensive Care Medicine. I read the um, online ahead of print version, so I don't know if it's in print, but I think it is. Um, and so many of the things that I've said are in that document. But what I want to really emphasize about this document is that because we don't have evidence specifically about how to treat COVID patients, what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline Group has done is they've brought together all the best evidence for sepsis in one document and said, gosh, this all applies to COVID because it's best practices. And so this is a document that you should read, period, end of story, because it provides good guidance for all septic patients. It talks about the potential uh, vasopressor choices, fluid resuscitation choices, um, conservative fluid strategy, which is recommended for patients with COVID because of their lung disease. Uh, it talks about adjunctive therapies. They do recommend steroids for refractory shock. And it really just is a, is a best practice document for care of the critically ill patient in, in most situations. So I really want to put a shout out for that very important document um, the version I read, I, you know, the version I read it was really eye-openingly good, and I, I can't say enough good things about it. But then, as far as you know, my, my closing thoughts would be, um, you know, first of all, sepsis is a bedside diagnosis, and the management should be at bedside. So, within your capabilities, as far as the personal protective equipment and other restrictions come into play really try to be there at the bedside with your patient to manage them, you know, the best that you can. Certainly don't put yourself at risk, but you have to balance the potential added benefit of serial evaluations for the patient, which could be very substantial with the potential added risk for the providers. And so finding a way to team up uh, with your care team is essential because this is just, you know, critical care is a team sport. And I think we're, I think we've known that for a long time, but people really are recognizing now that, uh, that it's uh, truly crucial. And then the, the final thing is just, rem is just to remember that when with treatment of shock, there's first-line therapies and there's second-line therapies. And we should always remember to use them in that order. Use your first-line therapies first. Appropriate fluid resuscitation as indicated. Rational vasopressor therapy, usually norepinephrine, occasionally using other drugs when indicated. Use those things first because that's what's going to work for the majority of your patients. Don't try to get fancy and use second-line or niche drugs more widely than they're indicated because a lot of the patients who get those drugs aren't necessarily the ones who might benefit them the from them the most if you're using them on everything. So thank you very much for taking the time to, to listen to me. I hope I answered everyone's questions. Man, that was awesome. Thank you very much, Jake, and I uh, wish you all the best, and thanks for taking so much time to speak with us. You take care. Absolutely. A big thank you to Dr. Jensen, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.